BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello and welcome to the Bill Press Pod. Bill's away, but back next week. I'm Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Editor at NBC News Digital, sitting in for Bill. And there's lots of news to cover. Democrats in Congress are scrambling to find an agreement on what's in and what's out of Biden's huge Build Back Better bill, focusing on health care, the social safety net, climate, and tax hikes for corporations and rich people. Meanwhile, Republicans are refusing to raise the debt ceiling to pay for things that they themselves authorized to be spent. Top Defense Department officials testified on Capitol Hill about Afghanistan, bringing along some fireworks about Trump. Are Democrats seeing warning signs in the economy in Biden's approval ratings? And Trump holds yet another rally as another former aide publishes a tell-all book, this time with details about the music man. Do we think Donald Trump is running for president again? To cover all of that, I'm joined today by three of Washington's top reporters, Niall Stanage, White House columnist for The Hill. Hey, Ginger. Igor Bobik, senior politics reporter for Huffington Post. Hey, hey. And Lauren Egan, White House reporter for NBC News. Hey, Ginger. Thanks all for being here. Let's get started with The Hill. Um, Igor, can you sort of explain to us, um, it feels like a week of of tumult, but then maybe we arrive at the conclusion uh, we already knew was going to happen and they do all the things they said they were going to do? Yeah, it, it feels <laughs> feels uh, both crazy and a little anticlimactic at the same time. Um, Democrats really put themselves into a corner here uh, in trying to pass both parts of President Biden's agenda, the the infrastructure bill that the Senate approved earlier this year and the subsequent, you know, social spending, big three and a half trillion dollar plan that, that Biden ran on. The problem is, is that they really didn't get all their ducks in a row in the Senate uh, months ago when, you know, they first started talking about this plan. Uh, two two members, especially in the Senate, have thrown up you know their arms and and now are saying that they never agreed to this this giant spending spending bill that has all these you know provisions in there the climate uh, uh, housing education child care and um, you know what what really would have helped is if the Democrats Schumer Biden Pelosi had gotten everybody on board uh, uh, first with this top line and what you're seeing now are all these negotiations and try to get everybody on board uh, in order to pass both bills. Uh, this vote today, uh, planned vote, may need to get postponed uh, because now progressives are also up in arms uh, in, in terms of getting Manchin and, and cinema on board. We see this fighting that's happening between um, progressives and liberals, but if you're at home watching this, I mean, what do you take away? Is it that um, Democrats are just having a little internal battle? Um, Is it that any of this matters at all to you? Are they tuning out or should there be some part of this fight that they're, they're tuning in for? 
Well, I mean, I think that if there was some turnaround in these difficulties that we're seeing so far and the Democrats were to get both these pieces of legislation passed, obviously that would make a tangible difference in the lives of very, very, very many people. I mean, we're talking about things like free tuition at community college, expanded Medicare, and a whole host of other things. So it does matter. Having said that, I take the point that people can get lost easily enough in the kind of congressional minutiae. And sometimes I honestly think people in our business do a kind of bad job of taking refuge in a terminology that is just completely opaque to uh, the viewing public. But look, this is a big battle. It's one that is really spotlighting the divisions in the Democratic Party between more progressive members on one side and people who I think are somewhat erroneously known as moderates on the other. I mean, the the bulk of the Democratic Party is behind all of this legislation. What you have is two holdouts in the Senate, primarily Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema, and approximately uh, 10 in the House. So it's a fascinating political picture, but it does have real-world effects as, as well. Let me ask you this then. If, this is ju- if they all agree, and it seems that they pretty much all do, as you point out, maybe with two holdouts in the Senate. Why have this messy public fight? Um, Is this harming the Democrats' brand? Is it making it seem like there are some of them who would agree with Republicans and not pass this bill? Would it have been better to maybe keep this all inside and done it behind closed doors instead of votes and rescheduled votes and pressures and press conferences promising to kill bills that members like? I think it would have been better to contain the divisions if they possibly could. That didn't prove possible. But your point is well made. The public does not generally like divided parties or parties that are at war with themselves. And so now you have all of these tensions very much out in the open. And I don't think there's any denying the lack of trust between the left wing of the Democratic Party and the right wing of the Democratic Party. We have seen that, for example, uh, between Senator Manchin and uh, people like uh, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez or Congresswoman Jayapal, who have been pretty blatant and pretty forthright in saying that they don't believe Manchin is uh, negotiating in good faith. And there was also, of course, a a different spat where um, Manchin referred on a Sunday show to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's young lady, which she didn't take kindly to, naturally enough. So you have all of these tensions that are kind of festering, but festering in the open. Of course, that's not a good thing for Democrats. So all of these sort of high tension sentiments on the Hill. And meanwhile, down Pennsylvania Avenue, we hear the White House joking about it. Let's listen uh, to Jen Psaki during the, the press briefing this week. It's like an episode of a TV show uh, where we, I, I'm not in a position to put lick in a crystal ball here. Which TV show? <laughs> maybe the West Wing, if something good happens, maybe Veep, if not, um, I'm not sure. I will assess tomorrow where we stand. Lauren, there's jokes, but is there a serious effort afoot in the White House to try to get the president's top priorities across the finish line? Yeah, I think Saki might end up regretting those words as it's unclear what exactly is going to happen with that vote. She made that joke 
in response to a question about whether or not the infrastructure vote would actually happen on Thursday. And I was in that briefing room yesterday, Ginger, and we tried really hard to get Saki to show her hand and describe a little bit in detail exactly what kind of role the president has been playing these past few days and what we can expect him to do, whether or not he's actually going to go up to the Hill and talk with people. We haven't heard him speak about this publicly this week, which is kind of surprising. And despite our best efforts, she really would not say. She said that he's continued to have conversations, obviously, with Cinema and Mansion, and he would continue to make phone calls. We had, we saw a group of negotiators from the White House up on the Hill yesterday. But of course, we know that this is really not a good situation or position that the White House is in. This is the president's signature legislative agenda item. This is what he took to Congress when he went to give his first address to Congress earlier this spring. This was the bill, these agenda items that he spoke about. And if he's unable to bring this across the finish line, it's really unclear what the midterm message is for this presidency. And we've heard from Democrats on Capitol Hill who have warned, without this, we're going to lose the House, we're going to lose the Senate. And we've even heard some Democrats, I heard Jayapal just earlier this morning saying, we're even going to lose the White House if this can't happen. So it seems to me that they're just, even the, the Democrats angst over getting this, they haven't yet turned their um, unhappiness towards Biden. I haven't heard as much complaining as I had even in previous bills, but they have, it seemed, turned their ire at a former member. Igor, let me ask you, what do you make of Kristen Sinema, uh, the senator from Arizona? We heard uh, liberals in her party in the House sort of start singling her out. They're more mad at her than Manchin. Um, is she now the, the focus of progressive displeasure? Yeah, I mean, I think that's fair to say. Um, a lot of Democrats are frustrated because, unlike Manchin, who, um, you know, for you know whether you agree or disagree with him, he will, you know, he'll talk, he will lay out his positions. As frustrating as some people might find them, yesterday he put out the statement, you know, saying that he's not he's not willing to go along with all parts of the Democrats' agenda, but at least you know where he stands. Cinema is is famously far more opaque. Um, she doesn't talk to reporters. She doesn't really hold, uh, you know, t uh, events in her state talking to constituents. Um, every now and then we get bits and pieces of statements that, that she and her office puts out in the press. But other than that, uh, she's kind of a, a mystery box. And uh, Democrats are frustrated because they they would like to hear from her and, and uh, see see where she stands and, and try to negotiate with her and, and uh to try to move this process along. And they're not getting that. And there's a lot of frustration on, on Capitol Hill. Do you think some of that frustration is because when she was in the House, she was a progressive? I mean, she was one of them. And now they feel like she's abandoned them? Or is it just she's an impediment and it wouldn't matter that she was in the House and it wouldn't matter that she was once a liberal activist, that they just see her as being in the way? Yeah, I mean... It, Part of it is that the state where she comes from, yes, she used to be a liberal activist and, and you know, you can call her a good politician in, in the way that she turned around and got herself elected to what was once a very red state. But Arizona is no longer that. There's two Democratic senators there now. Um, and, you know, unlike Manchin, you know, Manchin comes from an overwhelmingly Republican state. Trump carried West Virginia by 40 points. 
Biden won Arizona. Uh, so that's that's also uh, incredibly frustrating to some Democrats. I think the other thing that's been incredibly frustrating to some Democrats this week is the debt ceiling. Um, there was this plan to put it on a CR. Um, by Wednesday night, Schumer had abandoned that plan and they have a clean CR, as they like to say. The debt ceiling is still lingering out there. Niall, what do you make of the debt ceiling? Are we going to see a default? Is this a game of chicken? I mean, Republicans um, ran this tab up and now they don't want to pay it. Is there is there an end game here? It's a pretty extraordinary game that the Republicans are playing here. I mean, they pressed Democrats, of course, to raise the debt ceiling during the Trump presidency when spending was spiraling upwards. Democrats, broadly speaking, supported that move um, three times during President Trump's tenure. Now we have Republicans saying that they absolutely will not support a rise in the debt ceiling, saying that it's on Democrats to do so themselves. There are real dangers here. I mean, obviously, were the United States to default on its debt, that would have pretty catastrophic consequences, not just for the American economy, but for the global financial system. Democrats could try to play hardball or play chicken with the Republicans, but Mitch McConnell seems pretty adamant that Republicans are not going to support this. And the political backdrop or strategy here, really, it seems to me anyway, is that Republicans want Democrats to own this increase in the debt ceiling. They want to be in a position to say that it was only Democrats that uh, authorized a increase in the nation's debt. The whole argument about the fact that this doesn't actually permit more spending, it just permits spending that has already been pledged to be paid for. I I don't think that necessarily cuts through. These are complicated issues, and I'm not sure that most voters are paying attention to those finer details. So Republicans see a political advantage in, uh, in saying no, and we shall see if that proves correct in terms of the strategy or not. I think that we can we'll talk a little bit more about the, the prospects ahead, but um, if Democrats are willing to spend three and a half trillion dollars or more in some cases and not take political heat of that, it seems like this vote would, would at the end of the day, probably be viewed along with that one. So maybe not the political heat Republicans are even hoping for. Um, but there was a lot of heat, or it seemed, um, this week. And testimony we heard from some of the nation's top generals, lots of discussion about Afghanistan, about the way that that withdrawal played out. Um, let's start this discussion by listening to just a little bit of what General Milley had to say about the order he received to withdraw from Afghanistan. On 11 November 2020, I received an unclassified, signed order directing the United States military to withdraw all forces from Afghanistan no later than 15 January 2021. After further discussions regarding the risks associated with such a withdrawal, the order was rescinded. Lauren, this is an order that was given not by President Biden, but by President Trump. 
um, and then rescinded, as the general said. Um, we also heard the generals testify um, in the Senate and in the House that they had advised the president to keep a small number, 2,500 of them, in fact, troops in Afghanistan. Um, what did the White House, did we, did we hear from the White House on this testimony? Are they trying to push back? I mean, it seemed pretty critical um, and contrary to what the president had said at the time about what advice he was getting from those military leaders. Yeah, the White House has definitely pushed back on this. Saki actually brought that transcript from that ABC interview that Biden first made those comments in. She brought a transcript of that to the briefing room earlier this week and read from it and basically accuse reporters of not taking the full context of Biden's comments into consideration. They have said that Biden received advice on both ends of the spectrum and he made a decision. And when you get differing opinions, there are of course going to be people's opinions that you, and advice that you do not follow and that you uh, do not take. And they've pushed back against all assertions that um, you know, the president was being disingenuous about uh, the advice he was receiving. Igor, let me ask you, we heard um, Trump come up a lot during this testimony, whether it was um, this, the M- Millie's role uh, in that book, um, Detailed in Peril, or it was his role in, in calling for this um, this withdrawal. Do you think that there have been clear narratives about Trump's role in the in the Afghanistan withdrawal? I mean, we've heard him, we've seen him sort of try to make this all about Biden. Um, but did you get a clear sense that that Trump was the one who initiated all of this? Well, I think that's one of the things that's largely been lost in this, and, and Republicans are doing a good job of obscuring that fact that they supported uh, Trump's initial agreement to withdraw from Afghanistan and now are uh, criticizing the Biden administration for for enacting that withdrawal, no matter how it turned out in the end. Um, So, you know, you had all these uh, outraged Republican senators beating down Milley yesterday, um, you know, trying to get him to say that withdrawing was was a bad idea. Um, When in fact, their their president had, had supported this idea and had you know, negotiated with the Taliban, negotiated with terrorists uh, in the first place. So I, I think that did get a little bit lost in the picture. In the House, there was a lot more fireworks than there had been in the Senate. And we saw um, Liz Cheney and others really criticizing um, Republicans for their criticism of Biden um, and for their criticism of General Milley. Um Niall, let me ask you, when we see this sort of testimony, he sort of, the general sort of tried to preempt it um, in his first testimony, talking about this call with China. Um, Do you think he made a convincing case that what he was doing um, wasn't that surprising at all? I mean, or, and, and did it matter? Because Republicans were, a handful of Republicans were just going to yell at him no matter what. Well, the second point is certainly true. I I do think that he at least made a decent effort to uh, downplay the kind of drama of these calls to China that have been reported uh, first in the uh, Bob Woodward and Robert Costa book. Basically, Millie's account of those calls um, is, is less about him sort of going behind anyone's back 
he characterizes it, I think, more as the idea that China was in a receipt of bad intelligence or was overly nervous about the possibility of some kind of strike being launched against them by then President Trump in the final days of his tenure. So in Milley's telling of those calls, it's really about de-escalating tensions and reassuring Beijing that there was not going to be some sort of out of the blue attack. He was really portraying it very much as a, a situation where he himself never believed there was going to be such an attack, but he wanted to emphasize that to the Chinese and doing so in order to reduce the risk of some sort of catastrophic misunderstanding that would then lead to an escalation of hostilities. We also heard him give sort of a full-throated explanation about why he didn't resign. Let's listen to that. My job is to provide advice. My statutory responsibility is to provide best military advice to the president. The president doesn't have to agree with that advice. He doesn't have to make those decisions uh, just because we're generals. And it would be an incredible act of political defiance for a commissioned officer to just resign because my advice is not taken. This country doesn't want generals figuring out what orders we are going to accept and do or not. That's not our job. The principle of civilian control of the military is absolute. It's critical to this republic. In addition to that, just from a personal standpoint, you know, my, my dad didn't get a choice to resign at Iwo Jima. And those kids that are at Abbey Gate, they don't get a choice to resign. And I'm not going to turn my back on them. They can't resign, so I'm not going to resign. There's no way. If the orders are illegal, we're in a different place. But if the orders are legal from civilian authority, I intend to carry them out. Lauren, we we heard then Senator Hawley call for him to resign, um, and there has been a lot of calls um, from other Republicans that he be resigned. But it, it seems that after all of this, after all that testimony, he still has the full support of the Biden White House and um, would be shocked to see him moved at that point. Is that the sense you get from the White House? Yeah, and Saki has been asked point blank um, from the briefing room whether or not he does have the support and whether or not Biden has, you know, full confidence in his team. And she's said simply yes. Um, and I, I don't see that that changing. And I think we also have the benefit this week of our attention being on a thousand different things on Capitol Hill. That's definitely aiding, I think, the White House here um, in terms of what we're focusing focusing on with infrastructure, um, kind of eating up a lot of our attention and and focus right now. I I think that there is so much, but before we get into all of the other things that are eating our attention, let's take a quick break here on the reporters roundtable on the Bill Press Pod with Niall Stanage, Igor Bobic, and Lauren Egan. I'm Ginger Gibson. Today's podcast brought to you by the Laborers Union of North America, or LIUNA, L-I-U-N-A. Their motto is feel the power. And boy, they exercise their power all across this country, over half a million strong under the leadership of President Terry O'Sullivan. Uh, the laborers active in the construction field. They're building infrastructure already and ready to build a whole lot more of it. Congress ever gets its act together. Active in the energy field, building solar turbines, uh, solar panels, rather, wind turbines, and old-fashioned pipelines, if they're still needed anywhere. 
The labor is also active in the public service sector, particularly with healthcare workers and sanitation workers. Check out their website at liuna, L-I-U-N-A dot org. And thanks to the members of the Laborers Union for their great work building America and for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And we're back. I'm Ginger Gibson from NBC News Digital, sitting in for Bill, along with Niall Stanich, White House columnist for The Hill, Igor Bobic, senior politics reporter for Huffington Post, and Lauren Egan, White House reporter for NBC News. Let's talk a little bit more about Biden. We saw his agenda is really sort of going through the ringer on the Hill. We saw this testimony from Afghanistan, a lot of questioning about his decision-making, about his leadership. It's a guy who ran for president on sort of the the brand of competence, as one of my colleagues likes to often say. Um, and now his competence is being questioned. We saw his approval numbers take a little bit of a hit. Um, Igor, I'm wondering, is this spell real trouble for Democrats next year? Are they getting more nervous as the weeks go by and we see weeks like this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that they view this bill, this Build Back Better bill, this massive three and a half trillion dollar bill, if they can pass it as as their uh, kind of Hail Mary for next year's elections. They want to reverse the trend of, of distrust in government and they, they want to, you know, give people real help and and um, and show to them that government can help their lives and and, and in the end vote for Democrats. So that's why they're they're betting uh, that this bill can't save them, uh, but at the end it may not anyway. Of course, you know, you know, after passage of the Affordable Care Act in 2010, Democrats went on to lose the House and eventually lose the Senate. Um, next year, Republicans are obviously favored to take the House already. Um, now there's you know worries about what this is going to mean for the Senate, uh, and if Democrats have a good shot at, at taking the Senate ever again, just give, given. Um, the Republican advantage in, in rural states. So um, a, a lot a lot riding on this week in particular and the, the next couple of months as these negotiations go on. Now, let me ask you, we see the economy and, uh, you know, the uh, age old uh, phrase, um, it's the economy stupid. Um, <laughs> is Is that at play here, I mean, Republicans are just beating the drum that is inflation. Um, they're pointing to every economic indicator uh, that they can. Um, is this something that uh, that is going to resonate with voters? Or are they can it not be avoided because they're going to see it um, at the checkout aisle? 
I'm not sure it's resonating quite yet, Ginger, but it may do as time goes on, depending how the economy goes. The economy is obviously a vital central issue, as it always is. But I'm not sure that voters really have an exact sense of the overall trajectory of the economy yet. I mean, clearly there has been a somewhat robust recovery from the worst days of COVID. Republicans have made uh, economic arguments sometimes that have not proven to get enormous amounts of traction. I mean, when, for example, there was the... um, additional unemployment uh, benefits provided related to COVID. Republicans were arguing very strongly that that was in fact uh, causing a a sluggishness in um, employment numbers, that it was basically incentivizing people not to go back to work. There's not a whole lot of evidence that the Republican argument was correct. Uh, In fact, a number of studies have been done suggesting that States that ended that assistance early and states that did not saw broadly similar patterns when it came to employment. So inflation, of course, is a serious issue. If it were to really accelerate further, then people would clearly feel that in their day-to-day lives and it would be bad news for Democrats. But the Fed and other experts keep talking about the fact that the inflation we have seen is transitory. Um, because of the low baseline caused by COVID. If that proves accurate, I think that then, it obviously, it becomes less of a problem for Democrats and President Biden next year. So one factor that I think remains a big question mark for Democrats is Trump. Um, Democrats have done a very good job when he was in the public eye of making votes about him and making voters feel motivated, even if his name wasn't on the ballot, to get out and vote against him. We saw him again this week hitting, is it the campaign trail, holding uh, a campaign rally um, out in Georgia, campaign style rally out in Georgia. Um, And this came as well as him remaining in the news because another aide has published a book, this time Stephanie Grisham. Can we just start by talking about the title, Lauren? Um, did you ever see Stephanie Grisham take a question in the White House? <laughs> Ginger, I can't say that I did. <laughs> so she's The title of her book is I'll, I'll Take Your Questions Now. Um, and it just sort of undermines that Better late than never is right that she never basically took them um, while she was uh, her very brief stint, if we're being historically accurate, as the White House press secretary. But this did include a couple of nuggets, my favorite of them being the music man. Lauren, can you tell us a little bit about the music man? (laughs) Well, Ginger, um, as someone who covered the Trump campaign and I'm very well versed in the Trump campaign playlist. This was one of my favorite anecdotes as well to uh, come out from this book. Um, But Grisham in her book tells this story about how um, there was an aide who was called the music man whose job essentially was to play um, songs that were soothing or calming to the president whenever he uh, got upset. Um, And this is just one of, of a many um, interesting tidbits we have learned about the former president in these past few days. 
I think my other favorite was that this whole media debacle we had about him going to Walter Reed to have a physical that was out of timeline for his physical was actually him getting a colonoscopy, but he didn't want anyone to know, even though that's the appropriate medical thing to do at his age, because he was afraid they would make jokes about it. Um, Igor, let me ask you, uh, this is, uh, we've now referenced two books about Trump on this podcast today. This is from an aide, the other one from journalist. Are Trump books jumping the shark? Um, Have we gotten all of it and now we're just left of colonoscopy and playlist jokes? Or do you think that there's sort of an interest still in him and, and, figuring out what he's doing that, that we're going to keep eating all this up. Yeah. It's kind of like groundhog day. Every, every couple of months, one of these books comes out and something crazy or insane that he did ends up in the press. Um, I'm, I'm tired of it. I don't know know about you guys, but uh, clearly he's not going away and he's, you know, flirting with another run and who knows how serious that is or not. But I'm sure at the end of the day, he's enjoying staying in the headlines, no matter how weird or, or bad they are. I think there was also like a penis thing in there that anyway, I'll, I'll just move on. <laughs> it's a family podcast uh, here. Let's not um, get, get down that road. We'll leave some for the curious and the curiosity. Um, now let me just wrap with you. I mean, when you look at all of this, do you think Trump is running for president? Does this look like a man who's, who's running for office? Well, look, he hates being out of the spotlight. He loves being talked about. So clearly he is going to keep the idea that he might run for office alive. I am old enough to remember pre-2016 speculation about various Trump runs for president that came to nothing and were assumed to be publicity stunts. That was honestly my initial impression of the 2016 run, and look how that turned out. So I wouldn't uh, put anything uh, past him or, or suggest that he won't run for president in 2024. He, he may do. Uh, just one final point, reverting sw- quickly back to the books issue, Ginger. I actually spoke earlier this week with Omarosa Manigault Newman, who won a case at arbitration. Um, about her book, about her time in the Trump White House. Uh, Former President Trump had sought to hold her to a non-disclosure agreement, and the arbitrator ruled that that agreement was too broad and could not be enforced. Now, she said that other people have been in contact with her legal team since that decision was announced, talking about them coming forward. So uh, whether one is tired, like Igor, of the Trump book industry or not, there may be more revelations still to come. So this may not be the end of the Trump books, but just the beginning. Uh, Well, at least it will give us lots to talk about in the future. Um, Thanks to Niall Stange of The Hill, Igor Bobic from Huffington Post and Lauren Egan from NBC News for a great discussion today. But before we go, um, we ask you that you tell us your favorite story of the week, one that maybe allowed you to escape from the news or you thought was just really great and gave you a new perspective on it. Igor, could you go first? Yeah, uh, uh, my story is actually, and, you know, Niall may uh, also jump in here, but uh, it's from... Uh, Ireland, actually, and uh, this headline uh, hit me yesterday. Uh, there was a clown shortage in Northern Ireland, and they're, you know, they're trying to 
uh, drum up recruitment. Um, apparently, this is a thing. I, I didn't know there was a clown shortage now. There's shortages of all kinds of things, but clowns, that's that's a new one. And also, I just have to read a line from the story from this guy who this, who's apparently a clown uh, saying, quote, there's a lot more to being a clown than just putting on a big red nose and a big baggy pair of pants, end quote. Uh, I mean, I, if there's anything more profound than, than that sentence right there, I, I don't know what it is. Also, we've got a lot of clowns here, and maybe uh, we can send a couple over there. Washington can help solve the supply chain problem for clowns. I think that that's a great proposal. <laughs> Niall, would you like to go next? Well, I would like to go next to say there's an unusual unanimity here about the top stories of the week because the clown story, clown shortage in Northern Ireland was also my favourite. That's the part of the world that I'm originally from. I grew up in Belfast and I'm perplexed as to how we suddenly have this shortfall of clowns. Apparently it's uh, COVID related. Circuses had to close uh, during the COVID pandemic, understandably. The other thing I did not realize was that apparently Northern Ireland was importing quite a few of its clowns. People were coming there from elsewhere in Europe and returned home. Um, so now we have uh, an insufficient number. We have a, a balance of clowns deficit, and uh, perhaps that will be resolved at some point. But thank it's you, a good story you. anyway. I'm so glad you cleared it up for us. I'm, I'm really, I'm really glad you. <laughs> My pleasure. Yeah, uh, well, at least it hasn't been blamed on Brexit yet, uh, but maybe we'll get there before too long. Uh, Lauren, your favorite story of the week. My favorite story this week um, begins with two words that all good stories begin with, and that is Florida man. There is this video that went viral earlier this week of this man in Florida who is capturing an alligator in a trash can. And he is wearing slippers in this video, and he's just so calm and collected as he captures this alligator. It is this totally wild video, and I recommend it to everyone who wants to uh, just be totally in awe of this man's poise um, in the face of an alligator and get a little bit of escape from uh, the, the craziness that has consumed Washington this week. I don't know, Lauren. I think that that might be the absolute embodiment of what Washington is this week. Um, because at the end of the day, it'll all be settled and calm um, after a wild alligator wrestling. I saw that on TikTok. I think it's a great video. Anyone should watch it. My, my story of the week is from actually last week, but it's so great. I thought I would use it this week in the Wall Street Journal about a man who keeps a database that ranks sprinkler systems and whether they are depicted correctly in movies. So you can log on to his database and see um, which movies get sprinkler systems right and which movies and television shows get sprinkler systems wrong. Um, and apparently the most accurate depiction of a sprinkler system in Hollywood was in the original Die Hard movie uh, when he tried to set them off and it didn't work because it turns out it's really hard to set the sprinklers off and they don't go off all over a building because of one 
bit of smoke. And so I learned about sprinklers and I learned about movies and sprinklers um, and it was a great piece. And so I highly recommend uh, the Wall Street Journal story. Uh, everything you've learned from movies about fire sprinklers is wrong, except for Die Hard. Um, and with that, this is this week's roundtable. Thank you for listening. I'm Ginger Gibson of NBC News Digital, sitting in for Bill. He's back next week. Have a safe weekend.